This is Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have brand new songs from Celise Henderson and Toshi Regan. But first, the author that inspires their work, Roxanne Gay. Roxanne is a best-selling author, a professor, a New York Times columnist, and a nuanced and keenly prescient cultural arbiter. I'm delighted and honored to welcome her back for a second episode of Songwriter. Only a few weeks after the murder of George Floyd, in a live online performance presented in collaboration with the Harlem School of the Arts, Roxanne, Celise, and Toshi shared their work and had a wide-ranging conversation about writing, justice, and love. Here's Roxanne responding to an audience member who asked how she met her wife and what they've learned about each other over time. One day she was doing an event with a mutual friend and afterward they were sharing a drink and the mutual friend mentioned that I was her mentor and Debbie said, oh my God, I have such a crush on Roxanne Gay and I know she has a person, but you know, what's going on there? And my friend was like, shoot your shot because I was in a relationship that was complicated and I was allowed to see other people. And so she sent me an email, another one, (laughs) and asked me if I would like to go out on a proper date with her. And I said, sure. And eventually, even though I was very uncommunicative, we had a date in New York City, and we have actually been dating ever since. I think she learned that I am much quieter in our actual real life than people out in the world would assume because I'm very um, verbose on Twitter. (laughs) And in real life, I'm just very not. And so I think my quietude has been a delight at times. Here's Roxanne Gay reading Getting to Know You, Getting to Know All About You. For the entirety of our relationship, my wife Debbie and I have been long distance, or we were long distance. She is based in New York City and I am based in Los Angeles and we are both stubborn about changing our geographies. For the first six months of our relationship, I was teaching in Connecticut, flying east every other week. Despite the distance, we saw each other regularly and then we just made it work. As frequently as we saw each other, we never really spent a significant amount of uninterrupted time together. I was always jetting off to an event here or there or returning to Los Angeles for my work or my life there, or she was jetting off to an event somewhere, or she had to return to New York after visiting me in LA because of her day job. We were never concerned about the distance. Our friends, on the other hand, have long been deeply concerned about the matter of residence. We get a lot of questions about how we will manage the logistics of our marriage. We laugh and say we're going to continue being bicoastal. She loves her city and I love mine, and we both have good reasons for living where we do. And then there was a pandemic. Travel became intensely fraught and the country basically shut down. We decided to quarantine together in L.A. where there was less population density, warmer weather, a big blue ocean, a backyard. For the first time in 18 months, we were spending all our time together from morning until night. Once again, our friends were deeply concerned, regularly asking how we were doing, if we were still getting married, if we were still getting along. When they didn't get the answers they were expecting, they were surprised. There's a lot of public discourse about relationships. 
According to conventional wisdom, love is hard or love is easy or love is simple or love is complicated. I have grown tired of this conventional wisdom. Sometimes a relationship works and sometimes it doesn't and rarely does the quality of a relationship have anything to do with platitudes. Or maybe I am just older now and this is who I am for better or worse. Either you want to deal with all of me or you don't. In many ways, distance makes a relationship easy. When your time together is finite, you're generally on your best behavior. Every night is date night, sexy restaurants, exciting theater, museums, fancy parties, hot dogs at three in the morning from Chelsea Papaya, our favorite lesbian bar, and booze and plastic cups and grinding on a tiny dance floor surrounded by people 20 years our junior. You don't really settle into any ruts because you're always on the go, go, go. Before any cracks might start to show, you're apart again and missing each other and hearts are growing fonder. You get quality time together and quality time alone, the best of both worlds. In the weeks before the pandemic, however, both Debbie and I shared that maybe, just maybe, we wanted to spend more time together than apart, even if we didn't know how to make that happen. Now we are together all day, every day. We are together more than we ordinarily would be if we lived together. We have had more than enough time for cracks to show. We work in separate areas of the house, but we're always in each other's orbit. Always. We run errands together. We ride bikes around our neighborhood together. I knew my fiance before we began isolating, but still with each passing day, I am getting to know so much more about her. And fortunately, I delight in each new thing. So many people seem to genuinely dislike their partners, to merely tolerate the one they're with. They seem profoundly unhappy, unwilling or unable to do anything about it, and invested in the idea that everyone is just as unhappy as they are. I actually like my wife. She is smart and funny and kind and intense and endlessly interesting. She takes no shit from anyone and stands up for herself and the people she cares about without hesitation or apology. Debbie is growing a garden and she tends to it with tenderness. Every day she walks among the plants and bushes and trees, pruning this and pulling back that. She waters and talks to the greenery, encouraging everything to grow. I'm learning that she has a real love for the natural world. She takes bugs outside instead of killing them. In New York, she is all designer clothing and fancy shoes and very, very fast walking. In LA, she's barefoot, relaxed, willing to settle into a slower pace of life. She watches Wheel of Fortune every day, unironically. She plays along and is very good at decoding the words before Vanna White turns the letters. When both she and a contestant correctly guess a word, she claps enthusiastically, completely guileless about this simple pleasure. She gets very invested in a given episode's narrative. One time during a teen play episode, these two women landed on the $1 million wedge and she was literally on the edge of her seat, anxious and hoping that they would actually take home the grand prize. When they didn't, her sadness for them was palpable. When she sees a dog, any dog, in any context, she says, doggy, with such joy and enthusiasm. She also does this with cats and birds. I knew she was an animal lover and in fact, we have two cats, but I did not realize the depth and breadth of her animal love and how just seeing animals, any animals, brings her so much joy. She loves wind chimes and birds and installed a bird feeder so that whenever a bird comes to have a snack, she says, birdie. She makes up words all the time and sometimes they are so strange and surprising that I laugh. 
She spontaneously breaks into dance. Why? Who knows? While I hate grocery shopping, Debbie loves going to the supermarket and walking up and down every single aisle in the store. She loves farmer's markets and pausing at every stand and chatting with the farmers and buying interesting fruits and breads and flowers and jam. She is not a big eater during the day, but loves a hearty dinner, and I have no idea where it all goes. She grazes, nibbling on this and that, mostly while walking from one area of the house to another. She eats a rather shocking amount of fruit and pretzel rods and cake for breakfast because I am an avid baker. She drinks a lot of coffee, but only takes it with milk, no sugar. She refuses to drink water. She simply refuses. She loves kombucha and fresca, but has a real disdain for sugary drinks. When we sit down to dinner, she lights a candle to set the mood. She will not eat on paper plates or use plastic cutlery. She is loath to use paper napkins, but will if she must. When we order takeout, she plates it and puts food on serving dishes. And sometimes I get so contrary about this that I put my takeout container on a plate just to prove a point, though I could not tell you what that point is. I am the cook in our relationship, a role I am more than happy to assume. In turn, she washes the dishes. As my mother's daughter, when I'm doing the dishes, I essentially wash the dishes before pushing them in the dishwasher. Debbie just puts everything in the dishwasher caked with food and it's fine. The dishes come out perfectly clean anyway. She loves checking the mail and will go look at the mailbox several times a day, even once the mail has been delivered. She does not believe in waste, and if there is something left over or extra, she finds a way to give it to someone, anyone, to ensure that no waste has occurred. She loves to sit crisscross applesauce when she's in a chair. Technology is not her friend. She's capable and reasonably technology savvy, but the cable remote control refuses to work for her. It simply stops functioning when she holds it in the palm of her hand. I have never been so fascinated. When we're watching television, she is completely unable to tolerate commercials. Her response is practically visceral. And then it's a frantic rush to mute the television until the end of the break. She will watch any episode of Criminal Minds or Law and Order SVU, no matter how many times she has seen it. She is not at all tethered to her phone the way most people are. She can go hours on end without looking at her phone, which is maddening when I have sent her a text and I'm waiting for a response. She spends very little time on social media. I am often embroiled in some absurd online nonsense. I try to explain that nonsense to her. And the more I explain, the more I hear how absurd it all is. And she looks at me like I'm speaking a different language, which I suppose I am. We are both workaholics, but it is really revelatory to live with someone who wakes up, starts working, and powers through the entire day busy with meetings and teaching and running a graduate program and hosting her long-running podcast and serving on nonprofit boards and a hundred other things. All the while, I wander aimlessly around the house in cargo shorts, marveling at what I can fit in my pockets, maybe holding a book so I look writerly, and she graciously does not judge me. This is not to say that our relationship is perfect, it isn't, or at least that's what I'm supposed to say according to conventional wisdom. We have our quirks and bad habits and once in a while we have an argument and still every night when we get into bed, far too late because we're both night owls, we spend another hour talking and laughing, reminding each other about the need to go to sleep. I have no idea what perfect looks like in a relationship, but I have to imagine that what we have is pretty damn close. Thank you so much.
And now for the songs written in response. I first saw Celise playing with Lizzo on Saturday Night Live and quickly became a fan. A songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist, an actor, and a spoken word artist, Celise has a range and breadth that almost defies description. She has shared the stage with Fish and Mariah Carey. She's appeared on The Electric Company and 30 Rock. And Toshi Regan is American music royalty. A singer, a composer, a curator, and a producer, Toshi has worked in the fields of music and theater over a long and fascinating career that spans solo performances, collaborations with her band Big Lovely, and recently the opera she produced based on Octavia Butler's novel Parable of the Sower. Here's Roxanne talking about her reaction after she first heard Celise and Toshi's songs. The thing that's so great about creative collaboration is when people reimagine something that you've imagined. And so it was just interesting to see the directions that they took with their songs. With Toshi's song, I really loved the way that she brought in what's currently happening because love does not happen in a vacuum and yes the police should be defunded and so to be able to make a beautiful song and remind us that we are not living in a vacuum and that context is always shaping how we relate to one another was really just so unexpected and so lovely and with Celise's song, the first time I heard it, I just thought, oh, this is the most romantic and tender and loving and warm song I've heard in quite some time. And I just thought, like, I want to buy this song immediately. And um, it was just, just again, it was this like reinterpretation and to see like this understanding of love expressed from a different artist was just remarkable. And here's Toshi and then Celise talking about their reactions to Roxanne's piece and how they approach writing their songs. I love like literally what you wrote, Roxanne. So I thought I would actually try to write a song with you and use your use your text. You know, if you notice how she she wrote the piece. So the song is in three sections. And the first one is like telling you a certain story and then responding to the story I just told you, and then telling you something else, and then bringing you home. And when she brings you home, she's talking about this perfect relationship, and then I just said, you belong here. It's so nuanced in its language, too. I wanted something that felt matched in that level of nuance and kind of measured simplicity. Here's Celise Henderson with her song, They Say. Love is a gamble 
Henderson with her song, They Say. During the Q&A section of the show, Celise was asked about her connection to Sister Rosetta Tharp, who she has a tattoo of. Here's Celise talking about the vitally important and criminally underrepresented artist, and then Toshi connects Tharp to the work of one of her artistic heroes, Octavia Butler, whose novel The Parable of the Sower, Toshi has reinterpreted as an opera. This genre, when you think of rock and roll music, at least how it's been sort of taught to us, it's so synonymous with like 
straight, cisgendered, white men, which is a lie. And as a Black woman who plays rock and roll music, I understand how I'm standing on her shoulders. I'm standing on the shoulders of people that have come before me. And I got this tattoo, really. I mean, I, I love the art, but also because it, it gives me this really wonderful way to talk about this woman on a daily basis. They'd be like, oh, you like rock and roll music? Do you know where rock and roll music comes from? This woman, this this Black woman who was playing music in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, you know what I mean? So I, I love her. I think she's a really powerful figure and I think it's amazing that people are starting to find out who she is now. I would not have a career. I wouldn't have the genre of music that I like to play the most would not exist if it wasn't for her. So I have a lot of respect for her. Octavia and Sister Rosetta Tharp really occupy similar places for, for people and especially Black people. They're both foundational. And I know people are, are on this and I really respect it that she's like the mother of rock and roll. But if you categorize um, Sister Rosetta Tharp as the mother of rock and roll, you're actually limiting <laughs> really everything that she did. And it's important to say that because it's important to understand what Celise just said, that all of our you know, founding fathers actually learned from her. She is the first, I'm gonna sing what I wanna sing the way I wanna sing it. I'm gonna play my guitar the way I wanna play it. I'm gonna do everything. And the categories, you know, um, exist around her. They are not, they are not her. She used to make my grandma mad because my grandma couldn't tell if she was about to sing a, a church song or a blues song and it upset her because she was not trying to listen to no blues songs. She was like, I'm going to get you in the spirit no matter what I do or what I say. Here's Toshi Regan with her song, You Belong. You, you, you 
how you say and what you say. Then the stillness broke and all of a sudden the streets were hot. Black Lives Matter, defund the cops. 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 That was Toshi Regan performing her song, You Belong, written in response to a story from Roxanne Gay. Special thanks to Harlem School of the Arts. For over 50 years, HSA has been dedicated to enriching the lives of young people through performing and visual arts education in New York City. You can learn more about their work at hsa.org, and they welcome your support. Thanks also to Talia Westbrook and the entire staff at HSA, without whom this show would not have happened. Thanks, too, to Jazz, Caitlin, and especially to the artists. The next episode of Songwriter will feature Odie Lindsay reading from his novel Some Go Home and a brand new song written by Mary Gaucher. Songwriter is a part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network along with some other great podcasts. Make sure to check out americansongwriter.com forward slash podcast. And you can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Last, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe.